Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The reasons for the special Anglo-American relationship since World War II seem obvious. We, we share the same language and values and much of the same history. In his latest book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Truman and Brexit, Ian Baruma relates how a series of presidents and prime ministers have claimed to follow Churchill's example while they've handled and, and often mishandled the world's problems. It's published by Penguin Press and brings Ian Baruma to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. It's been a long time. You, yes. By the way, you, you confused Truman with Trump, which um, Truman ah. would be very unhappy about. It's until Trump and Brexit, not Truman and Brexit. Yes, uh, I didn't, I, I didn't I say book. Trump and Brexit? I thought I said Trump and Brexit. Okay, well, I wrote <laughs> Trump and Brexit. Well, I guess Truman was on my mind. And in this book, you look at the relationship between a string of of presidents and prime ministers, Roosevelt and Churchill, all the way to Trump and Johnson. Um, how present was the ghost of Churchill in the ways that those relationships developed? Well, I think very present because um, several myths uh, arose. And like all myths, uh, they had a kernel of truth but, um, uh, out of the victory and uh, over the Nazis and Japan in 1945. And the two main ones that I concentrate on in the book are the, the myth of Churchill and the related myth of 1938 Munich and Chamberlain and appeasement. Mm -hmm. And the way that the ghosts of Churchill um, have affected post-war politics in the United States, perhaps even more than in Britain, was is because too many presidents like to model themselves on the heroic image of Churchill and, uh, and justified often foolish and reckless wars by doing that. And they were, by the same token, terrified of being likened to Chamberlain and Pisa's. Now, did it matter whether the presidents were Democrats or Republicans or, or the prime ministers were in the Labour Party or, or Tories? No, not much. In fact, um, if you look at the history of the United States, uh, just after, even just after the war, the Democrats were more likely to favor um, intervention, military intervention, uh, for Cold War reasons or to spread freedom and democracy and so on, than the Republicans. The Republicans, before our own age, were still largely a party of business, and um, wars are usually not very good for business, certainly not international business. So it didn't make very much difference. And, but, and also in Britain, um, uh, Labour um, has a history of being just as anti-Brexit, for example, and just as um, keen on um, being America's junior partner uh, in military conflicts um, as the Tories have. Well, uh, Churchill has been invoked for both sides of the Brexit debate. Yes. Uh, he's often evoked by the anti-Brexiteers uh, because he made a speech in 1946, I think it was, in Zurich, Switzerland, where he said uh, the future of Europe could only be guaranteed if uh, they were to form the United States of Europe. And um, But he was a bit cagey about what the British role would be in that. And, and Britain still had a big empire, and I don't think he or anybody else in his generation could conceive of Britain as being just another European country. And so I think he saw Britain as a benevolent sponsor of the United States of Europe in the same way that he hoped the U.S. would be. Yeah, the Anglo-American connection has often been called a special relationship. Since Britain lost much of its power, the dissolution of its empire, has it actually been a mostly one-sided exchange? I think to a large extent, I mean, it was always more special in, in Britain than it was in America. I mean, most Americans don't have sentimental ties to Britain or England. Um, and uh, Britain was, very, since the war, because of its greatly diminished power, always very much the junior partner mm. in this and wanted to cling to the U.S. to somehow hang on to the glory days of, of the 1940s. Whereas Can we still US, call it, it Great Britain? Um, I'm sorry for interrupting. Can yeah, we still call it Great Britain? 
Yes, but the great, of course, doesn't necessarily mean great as in greatness. It <laughs> means the United Kingdom. <laughs> Although the United States and Britain were allies during World War One, weren't relationships between the two countries strange for many of the following years? And, and, and that would also apply to Churchill and Roosevelt, who would yes. have been some tension. Roosevelt was not an Anglophile, and uh, at the beginning he didn't particularly like Churchill, and he had, was, had no enthusiasm for the British Empire, which to Churchill was very important. But they did both realize that to defeat Nazi Germany, they had to be allies, and it was often with tension it held. Although it was uh, because the United States held almost all the cards, didn't the U.S. extract many concessions from a weakened Britain during the war, with, yes. with Britain well, giving true. naval basing rights to the U.S., forfeiting its nuclear program uh, that had been it had carefully built uh, to exclusive American control, and also giving in to U.S. demands for the financial assistance needed to prosecute the war? Yes, well, the, 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 the biggest... Um, uh, how shall one put this? I mean, the sacrifices the British had to make were really in the beginning of the war, uh, in exchange for American support and materiel and so on. Uh, Roosevelt drove a very hard bargain. On the nuclear front, I mean, during the war, they did cooperate. And uh, the first sort of steps to nuclear research were done in Britain, uh, not in America. But uh, gradually, as the American position um, became more and more dominant, um, it was withdrawn. Um, Britain was no longer an equal partner. Then Kennedy, I think, made concessions again to give the Brit Brit British a, a bigger stake. But uh, yeah, that was always a very contested um, area. Now, every president and prime minister since 1941 has mentioned the key factors of language, common heritage, common values. Barack Obama even cited a kinship of ideals. But Shouldn't racism also be included? Wasn't there a shared sense for many years of what Rudyard Kipling had called the white man's burden? I think so. I mean, the, the, don't forget that the British, uh, the Tories in Britain were on the side of the uh, Confederates during the Civil War. All British were, but, but the sort of the upper class was. And I think the Anglo-American sort of ideal, um, which Churchill used very much during the war in his rhetoric, perhaps the British did this more than the Americans, but the Americans did so in their own way, goes back to a kind of Protestant missionary zeal of seeing the Anglo-Saxon races as the, the sort of prime exemplars of freedom and liberalism and so on. And it was their mission to spread this all over the world. And this was a strong current of thought in, in Britain, and uh, in America. So, yes, uh, race certainly plays a part, but I think it plays a much bigger part in, in the history of the United States for obvious reasons than it does in Britain. Although it's shocking how open some of the diplomats on both sides were in the use of racially loaded words in terms that I would prefer not to say on the radio. Uh, and I, I wonder about Churchill now. Did he hate Gandhi uh, and dislike Nehru? Uh, because of hello uh, the colonial situation, or because he was a bit had a bit of contempt for for Indians in general. Well, I think he did, and and Churchill had many flaws, and even in his own time, I think his his views on race, although not especially unusual, but were still no longer really in step with the majority of the population in Britain, and uh, he certainly had a uh, a sense of white racial superiority, um, and that uh, the, the Chinese were not really to be taken seriously, and the Indians were uh, rather contemptible. Uh, I, didn't, I do think he felt that, but I think his policies were not necessarily driven by racism so much as by the idea that without the empire, Britain would no longer be a great power, and that mattered, mattered a great deal to him. And... Uh... Didn't the Roosevelt administration publicly advocate for the independence of India and other colonies? Yes, because uh, the United States government, certainly in, the, in, in Roosevelt's days, but also under Truman, um, were self-consciously anti-imperialist. And so they were against European empires, but during the Cold War, they would often still side with the Europeans, for example, in Vietnam. Uh, the 
out of fear of communism. And so uh, that was always a conflict in American policy. But even before then, uh, Roosevelt appeared to be more critical of British colonialism than of, of Soviet totalitarianism. Yes, I think he was, because I think the Americans saw themselves and, and the, the identity of the United States as, as essentially anti-imperialist. And I don't think he saw uh, Stalin, Soviet Union, as an imperialist power, which in some sense, of course, it was. But I don't mm -hmm. think he was seen as such. But he, but he rightly saw Britain as very much as an imperialist power. Well, actually, the uh, Soviet imperialism occurs mostly after the war, doesn't it? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. And FDR would have been gone by then. He would have been gone, and also Stalin was always more interested in consolidating uh, the power of the Communist Party within the Soviet Union rather than expanding it. And that was more the, the expansion was more a Trotskyist notion. Trotsky was the internationalist; uh, Stalin was the nationalist. Now FDR made it clear that he expected Britain's empire to be dissolved. How did Churchill respond to that? Well, with, in sorrow, perhaps more than in anger. I mean, he saw that it was inevitable that, that, that Britain couldn't afford to hold on to the empire for all that much longer after World War II. It was, based, it was pretty much a bankrupted country because of the war. And so it wasn't just that the, the empire... Um, came to an end because of American pressure, uh, not really at all. I think it, it sort of came to an end because Britain couldn't afford it any longer. And then, to some extent, to the regret of the Americans, because the Americans quite liked the idea that the British would help them uh, police the world. Well, wasn't the dissolution of the British Empire inevitable? Uh, there was a decolonization of French, Spanish, Portuguese, Belgian, and, and Dutch empires. It was inevitable, perhaps, in the long run, but um, it, it, that it's never seen that way at the time. And uh, few of these uh, colonies came to became, became independent entirely peacefully. I mean, it, it still took a lot of uh, bloodshed and, and friction. So if Britain wanted to uh, continue to define itself as a global power, it would have had to accept American hegemony? Yes. I think that was the deal that was pretty much accepted in, in London, accepted sometimes for gritted teeth. But the idea was that by staying in this special relationship with the United States, Britain could still, in the words of a, of a famous foreign secretary, uh, punch above its weight. Um, the alternative would have been to, which is what the Americans wanted the British to do consistently, uh, until Donald Trump, really, was to be a, play a major role as a European power and be the bridge between Europe and the United States. But instead of doing that, instead of concentrating on becoming an integrated major power in Europe, the British kept clinging to the special relationship, and I think uh, very much to their detriment. My guest on today's show is Ian Baruma. His latest book, and he's written many, is The Churchill Complex, the Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. The majority of your, your many published works have been about Asia. Um, is this mm. book something of a departure from you, although you have written a bit about European history as well? Yes, I've written about Europe as well. Um, a bit of a departure, perhaps. But um, I suppose there, if there is a sort of a line going through all these books, and one should always, as, as a writer, be careful not to analyze yourself too, too much because you become self-conscious. But I think coming from a, a mixed marriage, my parents were from different countries and different religious backgrounds. You become Your father very was Dutch. Your mother was British with a German-Jewish background. That's right. And now you live in the United States. Exactly. So do you think well, that it, it, being an outsider and an insider at the same time gives you certain insights that would have been uh, yes. less apparent to Americans and Brits writing uh, about this history? Perhaps, perhaps a better insight, certainly a certain sensitivity to the way countries or people in different countries see themselves. And that's something that's always interested me, whether it's Japan or China or, or, or Britain and America. 
Now, the, you, you begin the book with the story of you as a seven-year-old Dutch boy seeing Churchill in the flesh as he entered a West End theater for a performance of Peter Pan that starred his daughter, Sarah Churchill. So was that the first time you even became aware of him? I suppose so. I and mean, I can't have really known exactly who he was or what he represented. But what, what the thing that, that left a lasting impression was not just seeing this old man with a muff and making the B sign, which I barely remember, but it was the reaction of my maternal grandparents, my mother's parents, who were, the, who were very British, and they, they were the, the children of German-Jewish immigrants. And like many children of immigrants, they were fiercely assimilationist and wanted to be more British than the British. And it was their enthusiasm and their, their sort of patriotism and their cheering and so on for this, this old guy that, um, that left a deep impression. Did Churchill propose a merger of the British Empire and the U.S. with perhaps some form of common citizenship and a post-war Anglo-American arrangement in which the British and Americans bound in, in what he called familial closeness would jointly police the world? It sounds outrageous. Well, I I'm not sure he, 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 he proposed a complete merger. I think it had, had been proposed. There were, had been ideas floated in the past. I'm not sure Churchill did. What he did do in 1940, um, when France was invaded by Nazi Germany, he, he did um, uh, have, a, there was a plan to merge Britain and France, um, uh, which of course didn't happen, but, uh, and, and Churchill was involved in that. But the idea that Britain and America would police the world together, I think, was very much part of uh, the way Churchill saw things um, after the war. Well, before that, uh, as you point out, uh, while Britain saw itself as uh, coming to the aid of France, uh, the United States was very reluctant to enter the war. And the only reason it entered it was because of uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and then Hitler's declaration of war against the United States. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the great, one of the historical uh, mistakes made by Tony Blair was um, in the run-up to the Iraq War. He came to America and made some speeches, which went down very well, but saying that in 1940, the only people who stood shoulder to shoulder with Britain against Nazi Germany were the uh, Americans, which is completely wrong. Um, it, it took, uh, Roosevelt had a tremendous problem trying to convince public opinion in this country to side with the Allies. Um, partly because the America first uh, mood, um, staying out of foreign wars and so on, um, Charles Lindbergh, partly because a lot of Americans did not have British roots, and many of them had German roots, and were like H.L. Mencken, the great journalist, and were traumatized in World War I by the anti-German mood. So, and Father Coughlin had a lot of listeners on the radio. Absolutely, and, and a lot of Irish Americans had hmm. no great desire to be like uh, Joe Kennedy, um, Jack Kennedy's father, had no desire to join the Allies. So it, it, it did take the uh, Pearl Harbor in the end to get America in the war. And, and of course, Hitler's um, uh, declaration of war on the United States right after Pearl Harbor, which is one of the more baffling and reckless decisions made by any wartime leader. Well, he had total contempt for America in, in racial terms. He did, but it was still he, he, he did know that America had had a, a huge industrial might, and to simply declare war on America while he was fighting on fighting the Soviet Union was was reckless beyond belief. But then, you know, rationality was never Hitler's strong point. <laughs> now, uh, the reason I mentioned the the uh, the idea that we would kind of jointly police the world, uh, which was rejected by America, I was wondering if that uh, is what led Churchill to give his famous Iron Curtain speech in 1946 as a way of resubmitting the plan for a Pax Anglo-Americana. It may have had something to do with that. I also think he um, he was rather prescient. And although Churchill, too, during the war, I think, underestimated Stalin and had that 
illusion that many people who have a lot of power often do that you know if they can only just talk to their counterparts they they can make them see reason and so on and i think churchill thought that he could handle stalin but um i i i think he saw the menace uh, that stalinism rep- represented and um, believed that only the united states playing a major role could do something to stop it and so yes, it, it 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 was linked, of course, to his notion of Anglo-America policing the world, but and, and and especially in the Cold War. But he had been voted out of office by the time he made that Iron Curtain speech. Clem, Clement Attlee had defeated the Tories by a landslide in 1945. Uh, why, if if Churchill was seen as a hero, would he have been defeated so roundly? Because. Most people from the working classes who'd served in the armed forces, who'd sacrificed a lot during the war, um, had no intention of simply returning to the the way things had been in the past. And Churchill, although recognized as a great war leader, um, was very much uh, associated with the pre-war pre-war British world of, of class privileges and so on. And people wanted. A different world, and this was not just true there. I mean, even in in America, um, politics were way to the left of what they are now. And there was this global idea: of we have to start again. We have to have a more equitable world, uh, so that these great wars can't can't start all over again. When you say they were to the left of what they are today, Eisenhower is one of the uh, the presidents, and obviously uh, today he might have. I'm not even sure he would be in the Republican Party, but that's all no. other matter. Now, now, Churchill served two terms, 1940 to 45, and then 51 to 55. So he, uh, his relationships were with FDR, as we've been saying, but also with Truman and Eisenhower. Were they pretty much consistent, all three? Well, I think Churchill was always regarded as a great man, uh, particularly in America. So whether he was in power or out of power, people took him very seriously. And, um, and Truman didn't really know him during war, um, but um, warmed to him. So I think he was taken seriously, but I think that the Americans were well aware that, uh, that Britain was a diminishing power, even when Churchill was prime minister, and Churchill himself was aware of it. So I think there was a lot of humoring him um, without really giving him very many concessions. Now, I'm, this may be irrelevant, but how important to this story is the fact that Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Jerome, was from Brooklyn? It was probably important to him, and the same was true of uh, the prime, later Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. His mother was from Ohio, I think. Um, uh, Churchill himself was in many ways a sentimental man, and I think when he stood in Congress and said you know, how, how proud his mother would have been to see him in the haloed halls and on. He probably meant it, um, but he was also a clever politician, and he knew how to use these things uh, to his advantage. Now, I'm wondering about your title. What do you mean by the term the Churchill complex? Well, that Churchill, that the idea of living up to Churchill and living up to the myth of Churchill became an obsession, um, in, uh, especially in the U.S., but in, in the post-war world, the idea of fighting wars for freedom against tyrants and so on, uh, which, as I said, has a longer history of sort of missionary zeal of, you know, the, the American destiny in, in, in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, got both countries into a lot of unnecessary trouble. And so it, 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 it was not an entirely, uh, the effect of the Churchill myth was not an entirely positive one. So it uh, led to minor victories in places like uh, Grenada and the Falklands. But you write, quote, so tenacious has the aura of Churchill been, it's more often led to disastrous misadventures in Suez, Vietnam and Iraq. We're blaming <laughs> those things on Churchill. Well, I would know. I would not blame it on Churchill at all, but I would blame it on the certain perception of Churchill that is, has haunted um, uh, Anglo-American leaders. And uh, Iraq, I think, is the prime example. And both George W. Bush and Tony Blair kept uh, talking about Churchill and Chamberlain and 38 and 
this, this mistake should never be repeated and so on. And so I, and I think that war had, had terrible consequences and it helped bring uh, Donald Trump to power. For the, the Trump represents the America first. It, it mm-hmm. stands for everything that Churchill and Roosevelt fought against. It's interesting that uh, Trump and and uh, Boris Johnson are often uh, compared as having be uh, having many similar uh, characteristics. But haven't relationships between the relations between Trump and Boris Johnson been kind of strange? Strange is probably the right word. I mean, everything about both of them is strange. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't think that they would get on terribly well if they went on holiday together. But um, they came out of a similar mood uh, in both countries, and not just in these countries, but uh, of sort of anti-elite um, populism, uh, anger, uh, anti-immigrant feeling, nationalism, uh, nostalgia for a past that probably never existed, etc., etc. So they understand one another in that they, they exploit a, a similar mood, but that may be where the resemblance ends. Uh, after all, Trump has a, shares a lot of the, um, uh, the complex and anger against elites because he felt that people were always looking down their noses at him in, in, in New York, whereas Boris Johnson comes from great privilege. Although I met Boris Johnson, and uh, I, I shouldn't admit this on the air, but I was not all overly impressed. Uh, he was no. a guest on my show some years back uh, after he uh, was no longer the mayor of London, but before he became prime minister. No, he'd be That's more whole... fun than Trump. Excuse me? He was more fun? He'd be yeah, more well, fun I didn't... to hang out with than Trump, I think. Well, I haven't hung out with Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> haven't both Labour and Tory prime ministers been almost as unwilling as Churchill to give up the concept of, of Britain as a global power over the past 80 years? Uh, certainly, I, I would say that was true in the first uh, yeah, the, the first decades after the war, I, I don't, I, and then it came back in the whole Brexit campaign as a form of nostalgia. I mean, I think now uh, talk of Britain becoming a great global power again is is a sheer delusion. At least in the 50s and, and late 40s and 50s, and even early 60s, Britain Britain still was a formidable power. I mean, nothing like the United States, but it it, it represented something real. Um, and yes, that was shared both by uh, Labour and the Tories. And um, even now, in the, on the far left in Britain, there's a lot of pro-Brexit feeling um, for the same reason that Labour took that view in the 40s, that um, without Europe, Britain can become a, a stronger socialist state. But even in the 60s, uh, a Labour prime minister, Harold Wilson, insisted that Britain's frontiers were on the Himalayas. Yes. Yeah, I don't think he meant that in the, literally as a sort of neo-imperialist enterprise, but the idea that Britain represented more than other European countries and was still had a global role to play in all that, that, that was certainly as strong uh, on the left as it was uh, on the right. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. A melody used both by the British and uh, later by the United States. Obviously, God Save the Queen, but my country tis of thee. So there's another connection. Uh, before we get back to my conversation with Ian Baruma, uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to step up and show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call right now at 516 620 
3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to support BAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And, and I am excited to announce that we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during today's show. If you sign up to become a sustaining member, we would be happy to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit by my guest Ian Baruma. All you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org on your computer or smartphone and sign up at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15.20, whatever you're comfortable with, taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You can cancel at any time, and you don't even have to tell the person at the BAI call center about the book or check any special boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and my staff will make sure that you receive it. But whatever you contribute, the important thing is that you do your part by stepping up and supporting this show and this legendary radio station, the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored without corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. So one last time, the number to call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at this station, thank you so much. And uh, unlike Britain, uh, we... Um, we are on the honor system in Britain. If you the, you have to pay for the BBC, whether you listen to it or watch the television shows or not. My guest is Ian Baruma, and we're talking about his book, his latest book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, From Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. It is published by Penguin. Well, let's talk about Brexit, okay? Because uh, th th that is the, the big issue right now. You note that although uh, the U.S. and the U.K. were once regarded as models of openness, liberalism, and generosity, both nations have become illiberal, nationalistic, and mean-spirited. Has that warped Britain's more vital relations with France, Germany, and Belgium that has ended in Brexit? Brexit? Yes, yes, I think it has. I mean, m most British prime ministers, whether of the left or the right, uh, since the 60s, have been um, uh, uh, have been in favour of being part of the EC or the EU for economic reasons. Very few of them really. There's only one, um, Edward Heath, who uh, shared the European ideal behind um, European um, institutions. That is to that it was sort of an, you know, that you could create a better world by um, having European institutions that would make another world war uh, almost impossible. The British never really shared that. They were always ambivalent, ambiguous, and so on. And so even during the Brexit campaign, uh, Cameron, the, 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 the pro-EU uh, prime minister, never really made a positive case for it. All he did was to point out the disastrous consequences if Britain were to leave. So I think it was there are all kinds of reasons for public opinion being behind Brexit, um, but uh, a certain animus against Europe, um, a sense of xenophobia, a nostalgia for Britain standing alone and so on is certainly part of it, and that does warp British relations with the continent. And you write, quote, Trump, Farage, and the more rabid Tory Brexiteers spoke obsessively about taking back their countries and making them great again. And this talk was was either grandiose, Britain is a great global power, or reflected a narrow chauvinistic view of the world that Roosevelt and Churchill would have found abhorrent. And didn't that talk lead Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron to remind both the United States and UK about how democratic nations are supposed to behave? Yes, I think they, they said that less to, to Britain. Uh, that, I think she made that famous statement um, after Donald Trump was elected four years ago and said, of course, Germany would be happy to um, work in alliance with the United States uh, as long as the United States would uh, 
would um, share the same liberal and democratic values. Um, but uh, so I don't think that the European case against Britain was so much that the Brexiteers were anti-democratic. It was more that Britain was sort of uh, turning its back on Europe and the European enterprise and European ideals and, and so on. Um, that uh, did cause a lot of resentment um, in, in, in Europe, not not just in Germany and France, but especially in the smaller European countries. Um, who really wanted Britain to, to be part of the EU, because um, otherwise it's, it, it becomes a completely Franco-German show. Didn't the United States want Britain to involve itself in Europe to enhance the American goal of, of bolstering Western Europe as a self-sustaining pillar in, in the Cold War? Very much so. The, the, the United States has always encouraged Britain to play a bigger role uh, in Europe, and um, various administrations in Washington saw British pretensions to the special relationship and so on as as rather absurd and self-aggrandizing and not in American in, in the American interest. So was so Donald the Trump was an exception, in, uh, I think. Well, he's been an exception in many ways. Yes, um, which we're seeing right now in yes. uh, the way he has responded to the election. Um, was the, the desire to please Washington among Harold Macmillan's main reasons for applying for membership in the European economic community? Or did uh, he see that as being in, in uh, Britain's best interest economically? I think the latter. I think he saw that it was in, in Britain's uh, best interest. Uh, he also saw it um, very much as a security issue. This was really the, in the middle of the Cold War, and he thought... Uh, a strong Europe with Britain as a major player in it would make the West more secure. I mean, there's a very interesting interview he did with William Buckley Jr., um, where he says, uh, this was on, on, his, on Buckley's TV show, mm -hmm. and he says, Britain alone as a great power didn't last for more than a few, few centuries, and, but that Britain could still remain a great power if it were part of Europe. And I think he, he did mean that. Now, both Tony Blair and uh, and Cameron, uh, David Cameron, joined, uh, uh, committed Britain to join the United States in military in interventions in Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and, uh, and only parliamentary opposition prevented Britain from joining the United States intervention in Syria. What was, yes. uh, what was, why would Britain even want to do that? Why would it want to uh, send troops to those places and have Brits die for something that seemed to have a uh, little consequence for Britain? Well, I think Libya and Syria, certainly Libya, was also seen both by Britain and France um, uh, to be, to, to, to intervene, uh, was seen as a way to assert European um, uh, an active European role, um, because uh, President Obama was not at all keen on these interventions. I mean, the, the, the intervention in Libya was very much uh, driven by the French and the British. But as far as Blair is concerned, he was a true believer. Um, he, he was very much, I think, a victim of the Churchill myth. Uh, again, on the, in the run-up to the Iraq war, he writes in his memoir how he uh, was reading Chamberlain's diaries and, and, and was resolved never to uh, make a similar mistake again and, and so on. And he, he was also very American and un-British in the way that he was overtly religious and was, was calling, uh, you know, was using God in a way that British politicians very rarely do. And uh, I think he saw it as a sort of messianic mission, again, back to that old idea of the Protestant missionary spirits, both in Britain and America, uh, a mission to intervene on behalf of freedom against tyranny and so on. And I think he shared that with George W. Bush. I don't think it was cynical. Um, it wasn't just about oil. I think both men thought that, you know, God had told them to do the right thing. But Britain had a, a long, troubled history in the Middle East, uh, which included the, uh, the War of the, the Suez Canal. But there were many other uh, 
uh, uncomfortable things that happened over the years, including the, the creation of, uh, you know, the independence of Israel and, and uh, the, t the tension that that caused with former British colonies. Yes, well, those are two, yes, those are two very large subjects, of course. I mean, I think with, with Israel, they've got themselves into a, a terrible dilemma because uh, already before the war, they promised both the Arabs in Palestine and the Jews uh, who lived there or wanted to move there uh, that they could both um, have their country there. And so uh, that caused all kinds of problems. And then after the war, um, the British did not want too many Jews to um, go to Palestine because they knew it would cause all kinds of frictions with the Arabs. Um, on the other hand, that put them in a terrible dilemma because a lot of Jews in, in deportation camps and displaced people's camps and, and so on uh, after the war, victims of the Holocaust, survivors, had nowhere else to go. So it was a, a, a terrible position to put, put Britain in. Um, what was what were Churchill's thoughts about uh, the, that possibility? Well, because I he think was... the Tories, the Tories were were again con, uh, conflicted. Um, Anthony Eden, who was Foreign Secretary uh, and not a great friend of the Jews, um, I don't think wanted. To, I don't think that, that that anybody in Britain was particularly keen on. Um, uh, massive Jewish um, immigration to to Palestine because they knew it would, was was going to cause cause problems. I don't think this was a big conflict between the two different parties. But Suez was a different thing. Suez was a bit more like Libya in that it was a Franco-British um, mm. uh, enterprise uh, uh, with the Israelis um, against uh, the American um, uh, will. And so uh, the irony is that even though I've been saying that you know Britain should have played a much bigger role in Europe and sided with Europe rather than cling to the United States, but there were at least two occasions where they did just that and operated together with France and ended in disaster. I mean, one was was in uh, uh, in Suez, and the second time was in Libya. Ironically, the United States had a similar situation with the Panama Canal. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I guess. Um... We didn't learn from each other's mistakes. People don't, um, on the whole. They learn the wrong lessons from history rather than... Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that there are great lessons to be learned from history because it never repeats itself, but they often learn the, the wrong lessons of history. We've been talking about how uh, the United States kind of dominated the relations after World War II, but didn't Britain hold its own when it came to popular culture? Uh, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, Dusty Springfield, Petula Clark, the Kinks, Elton John, uh, and even the popularity of James Bond and, and uh, some other spy stories like that. Yes, but all those names you just mentioned are from more or less from the 60s. Yes. So I, there was a period uh, that Britain had a huge global influence in popular culture, largely by sort of anglicizing American culture, let's not forget. I mean, the, the Beatles mm. and the Rolling Stones and all the others, they were white boys imitating black American music at a time that uh, white people in America didn't listen, listen very much to black American music. And uh, so it, it was a sort of re-import um, uh, of American culture seen through a very British lens. My guest is Ian Baruma, who... Uh has written numerous books. Uh, the one that we're discussing, his most recent, is The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit, published by Penguin Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, looking over the, the, the post-war history, um, it's really interesting to, to note how uh, you often have a, a Tory government with a, a Democratic U.S. administration and vice versa. And in some cases, uh, crossing, for example, um, Harold Macmillan had Eisenhower and uh, JFK. Uh, Harold Wilson had uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Uh, 
with Harold Wilson. He also had later um, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Uh, so this is, is were, were were relations smooth no matter who? No, and and the interesting thing is that the presidents and prime ministers who who got along um, often were not from the same political um, uh, persuasions. I mean, it was often that sometimes a Tory prime minister got on better with a Democrat or uh, vice versa. A Republican got on better with a Labour prime minister. So it, the, the personal chemistry often had very little to do with um, with the politics. Um, Tony Blair and, and George W. Bush being the prime example. I mean, they couldn't have been more different uh, as far as their domestic politics were concerned. I mean, one was a social democrat uh, and the other was a Republican. But um, they had enough in common personally, their religion, I think, being the major part of it, um, and the way they viewed the roles of their countries, um, that they could get on regardless. Well, Tony Blair also had uh, had Clinton, so uh, th yeah. that, there was a and big then, contrast and, and between they, the two. That's true, and they got on very well, of course, because they had they did have politics in common. So mm -hmm. yeah, Tony Blair is an example of somebody who could get on with presidents from both parties. And I would think that uh, Margaret Thatcher and Reagan and George H. W. Bush would have been a love match. At least no, you, Ma if, Margaret Thatcher and, and, and uh, George H. W. Bush did not get on very well. Uh, but she um, liked Reagan, according to the, uh, Reagan. The, the show The Crown. She liked Reagan, but again, it's easy to overrate the personal side of that. She, she loved what Reagan stood for. Um, uh, she saw him very much as an ally in, in, the, in the sort of Cold War against the Soviet communism. But I don't think had a great deal of respect for his intellect. I think she she found it much more interesting and challenging to argue with Gorbachev than she did with uh, Ronald Reagan. And sort of it wasn't it wasn't her scene going around in golf carts and on, on, on the ranch and that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, I think. It was, an, it was a friendship and an alliance that was probably affectionate when it had to be, but was, was very much um, political, uh, her, her friendship with Reagan. Whereas I think no, she, she genuinely was fond of Gorbachev. She, she respected him. What about Obama? You point out that he was the first president since World War II to distance himself uh, from Churchill he, or Britain. He never mentioned... Uh, Churchill, the, the, the special relationship that we've been talking about in uh, the book that he wrote when he was running for president, The Audacity of Hope. Well, I mean, Barack Obama is, is of course, not from the East Coast. Um, he, he grew up partly in Indonesia. And like many Americans of his generation, especially Americans from, from the West Coast or the Northeast, um, where he also grew up, uh, I think he, I don't think he had any sentimental ties to Europe and was in many ways more interested in Asia and uh, saw uh, that U.S. politics and, and foreign policy in Asia was going to be more important than, than in Europe. So, uh, yes, he, you mentioned earlier that he made a speech about kinship and so on with Britain. But that was later, and I think he did it rarely out of politeness. I don't think his heart was in it. I don't think he was profoundly interested in European affairs in the way that um, presidents of earlier generations, including Richard Nixon, um, had been. Some people are suggesting that Brexit may ultimately lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom with Scotland and Northern Ireland feeling that they're going to have to leave Northern Ireland right now is going through a really rough time because it is so incredibly affected its relations with the Republic of Ireland. So, um, well, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, Northern Ireland is complicated because the, uh, the Catholics in Northern Ireland have no love for the United Kingdom anyway. Um, and, uh, it, it's very conceivable that the Northern, Northern Ireland, there will be a majority eventually of people in Northern Ireland who prefer union with Ireland. 
problem there is that a lot of the uh, Irish in, in the Republic of Ireland um, are not entirely sure that they want uh, Ulster or Northern Ireland to be part of their country because they see it as a sort of troublesome province that they'd rather be have a border. But um, with Scotland, uh, the Scots have always been much more pro-European uh, than the English. And Brexit is very much an expression of English nationalism. And of course, this also has a much longer history, that the, the Scots were often closer to France than the English were. And um, they may see it in their interest to break from England and become and apply to become members of the EU. Now, whether the EU will do that is another question, because uh, Spain, for example, may not be uh, favorable, because if the Scots succeed in doing that, then why not the Catalans or the Basques? Mm -hmm. It's ironic that right now, if you look at uh, the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the Catholic country, is much more liberal. In, uh, for example, uh, it's now recognized gay marriage, and I think that uh, they've legalized abortion, and, and uh, Protestant Northern Ireland has not. No, that's right. Um, but even the Catholics in Northern Ireland, I mean, I, I think are divided because they also know that being part of the UK uh, has been quite beneficial in many ways and that they might not benefit so much if they were to become part of Ireland. So I think if you put it to the vote, it's not at all clear whether you get a majority in Northern Ireland to uh, join the Republic, and nor is it clear that a majority of the Republic would welcome it. Ian, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Uh, Ian Baruma, his latest book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit, published by Penguin Press. Thank you again. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program and you would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, or you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to send me a comment about a show or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to ask you one last time to support this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it alive during these very challenging times. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And, and as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with, we would be delighted to send you a copy of The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit by my guest Ian Baruma. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us to all of you, thanks. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when former Trump Organization executive Barbara Ress will discuss her book about her time working under the Donald. Uh, the book is called What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. And we'll see you then, okay?